Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. As you are no doubt aware, this show is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, which has been hand-making quality, small-batch podcast content out of our organic, family-owned brewery since 1835. This month, I'm very excited to plug a new offering by a friend of the show, Steve Guerra. Steve has started up a show where he and another history podcaster review and discuss a history-themed movie. Just as a for example, in a recent episode, Steve, Gary Stevens, and myself discussed the classic 60s movie, The Last Valley, starring Omar Sharif and a very young Brian Blessed. The movie is great, and we had a hoot talking about it, so I do encourage you to go check out Steve's new show, Beyond the Big Screen. Turning to more domestic productions, we have five new patrons this month, and they deserve honor and praise. First up is Brent, known henceforward as Sir Brent, slayer of the dreaded beige Corolla of Maple Gardens. Because of Deb's donation, she shall be known from henceforward as Viscountess Deb, the Gingham Dame of the Plaid Hills. Rosa shall be known far and wide as Lady Rosa of Several Serfs. Mike shall be known after this day as Earl Mike Two Socks. Finally, we have Amy, who shall be known hereafter as Countess Amy of... You know those little red bugs? Clovermites. Ah, yes. Clovermites. Amy, the Clovermite Countess. Thank you to all our donors, past and present, and to all of you for listening. Due to your support, we are a mere $128 from our goal of $200 a month, a goal which will help me move my family to a neighborhood where bullets are not the national bird. Once these things had been done thus, as the most holy Roman emperor was hoping to stay in Rome with few retainers, unless he should exhaust the Roman people through the multitude of his army, he gave many troops license to return north. Now when John, who was so-called Pope, learned of this, he secretly sent messengers to Rome, promising the money of St. Peter and all the churches if they were to attack the pious Emperor and Lord Pope Leo and butcher them most impiously. For he was aware of how easily money can corrupt the minds of the Romans. Why do I delay the conclusion so long? With their trumpets blaring, the Romans hastened against the Emperor so as to kill him. They trusted in or were deceived by the smallness of the imperial army, and encouraged by the promise of money. The emperor himself rushed against them towards the Tiber Bridge that the Romans had blocked with carts. His strong soldiers, with breasts hardened by war, intrepid with weapons, leapt at them, and, like hunters of birds, terrified the multitude. None were able to resist. Neither the dens, nor the baskets, nor the curved wooden beams, nor the sewer tunnels could offer any protection for those in flight. They were killed, therefore, and, as happens with men that strong, most were struck in the back. Who then of the Romans would have survived the massacre, if the holy emperor had not been inclined to that mercy which he did not owe them at all, and had not called back his men, still thirsting to kill? 
Quote from Lute Prend of Cremona's Historia Atonis, as read by the inestimable Dominic Perry of the History of Egypt podcast. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia through the wars of the Reformation. This is episode 32, Imperiator Augustus. In the last episode, we heard the full narrative of the Battle of Augsburg. Following Otto's invasion of Italy, grievances against the king were nurtured by Conrad the Red and Ludolf, Otto's eldest son. Together with Frederick of Mainz, a rebellion was sparked that quickly grew out of control. Due to the changes Otto had imposed on the stem duchy system, ethnic and political tensions across the kingdom exploded into open civil war. Seeing an opportunity, the Slavs and the Magyars resumed raiding into eastern Francia, something which rapidly turned opinion against the rebels. Finally, Conrad the Red made the decision to cross the lines and reconcile with the king, leaving Leodolf isolated. By the beginning of 955, the rebels were reconciled and the kingdom settled in to see if the peace would hold. Into this uncertain situation came a massive Magyar army, but they were diverted by Otto's garrisons and bogged down in a siege of the fortified city of Augsburg. Otto gathered troops from across Germany, and as he marched towards the Magyars, he was joined by Conrad the Red. The two former enemies attacked the Magyars together, and gave them one of the most complete defeats in living memory. Conrad was killed in the effort, but the Magyars were slaughtered, and their leaders hung before the gates of the city. I know last time that I closed with the question, how are we to view the Battle of Augsburg? This question is going to have to wait for next episode, unfortunately, but I have something special in mind for that discussion that I think you will enjoy. I don't think you'll be disappointed. So hopefully you'll enjoy that. Today, however, we will wrap up with the story of Otto and answer an even bigger question. Ben, why have you spent more than 10 episodes on the early Middle Ages? To answer this question and many others, we will need to backtrack a bit and talk about Pope John XII. Because he is particularly important to our story, because we haven't really talked about the last few popes, and because John was... he was kind of an odd duck. Now the reason we've not talked about the last few popes is because they have not really been important. They haven't been important because, as you will recall, they have mostly been puppets, put in their position by the Theophylact dynasty of Roman strongmen. This is not to say that nothing of lasting significance happened during this time, it's just that the significance was mostly theological in nature and somewhat outside of our scope, so please forgive me. Now, as you may recall, the technical basis of Theophylact power was as representatives of the Emperor of the Romans, who had a power to <coughs> observe papal elections that dated from the time of Louis the Pious. Of course, the office of Emperor had been left derelict since the death of Berengar I, and Berengar had himself not actually attempted to interfere in local Roman affairs, and this left the Theophylacts to pretty much do their own thing. Using patronage and land distribution to enforce control over the mob and the military, the Theophylacts stabilized the chaotic papal states over the course of three generations. By the time of our story, Albrecht II was in charge, and you will recall that he had assumed total personal control over Rome by ousting his mother, Marosia Theophylact, from power as a result of her marriage to Hugh, the king of northern Italy. So the Theophylacts had Rome pretty well locked down, but they technically did not actually rule it. The Pope was still considered to rule the Papal States, which was not so odd a situation as it would become later, if you think about it. He's a bishop who's ruling territory. It's odd these days, but at the time, pretty standard. Many bishops ruled cities in the early Middle Ages, as we discussed in our crossover with Steve Guerra. 
If this kind of rule was on the wane at this point due to the increasing chaos of the time, it should also be noted that the use of bishops as feudal rulers of territory was actually on the rise in the lands north of the Alps at this point. Still, in Italy the trend was definitely away from bishop princes as the sole rulers in cities, and towards the bishops being but one member of the landed, but urban, aristocratic class. If Rome had been any other city, the Theophylax probably would have eased their bishop aside as well, but this was Rome, not any other city. Rome was definitely humbled from its days as the head of the empire. Archaeology shows us that land within the city walls had fallen vacant and been returned to use as agricultural land. Think Detroit these days. All the same, Rome was easily the largest and wealthiest city in the Latin West. This may be akin to being one of Disco's greatest hits, given that urbanism in general was at an almost post-apocalyptic nadir, but that still meant that there was a lot of money in Rome, that a lot of people depended on that money for their livelihoods, and that the underpinnings of that situation were not something you wanted to mess with. There were a number of factors underpinning this continued prosperity. Rome controlled a significant hinterland, and it remained a trade hub. But undoubtedly the thing that tied all of this together was the papacy. It was the papacy that controlled the hinterland. It was the papacy that bought the luxury goods that caused the trade. And it was the tithes and funding that came from all over Europe that allowed the papacy to do these things. Now, while papal grandeur was not what it would become, the papacy was recognized clearly as the head of the religious structure of the church in a way that had taken on a mystical significance even by this point. The ability of the pope to project hard power was definitely limited, as evidenced by the number of times Rome has been sacked within our story, and the churches across the Alps often operated in very different ways from those in Italy, as we'll discuss further in a little bit. But given the conditions of the time, all of this is not to be wondered at. What is much more amazing is how much coherence the Latin Church actually had through this entire period. Because theologically and organizationally, the West outside of Italy was shockingly uniform. In the West, the major theological controversies at this time were about things like what kind of haircut a monk was supposed to have, and when Easter would be observed. This is not to diminish the passions that these issues sometimes aroused, and there were a few near schisms at the boundaries of Europe, but for the most part, the people involved agreed on some basic things. Ultimately, they agreed that there needed to be a single spiritual organizational authority, that this authority should ultimately descend from the apostles, and that Rome was the only legitimate source of apostolic authority in the Latin world. By contrast, the Eastern Roman Empire was, during the same period, convulsed by repeated controversies about some fairly fundamental aspects of Christianity, things like the nature of the Trinity, and, maybe less fundamental, whether drawings in churches were okay. Some of these controversies spread to the Greek communities in Italy, but by and large there was never anything approaching the level of intellectual and institutional conflict in the West that there would be in the East. As such, communications with Rome were maintained through the darkest days of the early Middle Ages. Pilgrims from as far away as Anglo-Saxon England traveled to Rome in such numbers that there was an entire section of the city devoted to them. In the other direction, messengers and representatives of the Pope took messages of guidance and command to all corners of the Christian world, and people actually listened to them. Not always, but given the circumstances, sometimes is better than no times. And this communication occurred despite the fact that the roads were not being maintained. The bridges were out, and there were long stretches of uninhabited countryside where food could not be bought for love or money. Banditry was rife, Vikings and Magyars crisscrossed the countryside, and in the middle of it all were the Alps, which, during several decades of our story, were inhabited by Saracen raiders. 
The Pope was, of course, a distant and abstract figure, but he remained the focal point of the religious organization of the Church. His agents intervened effectively in religious affairs across the continent, and even engaged in concerted missionary efforts. So, we don't know necessarily why the Theophylacts didn't shove the Pope out of executive control. People tend not to explain at length why they aren't going to do something like that. Like, if someone you know came up to you out of the blue and said, Good news! I've decided not to steal all your stuff and possibly murder you. You will probably not take it as good news. All the same, we can probably speculate with some accuracy as to why the Theophylacts decided not to remove the popes. Even if all the other Italians are shoving bishops out of power, all eyes are squarely focused on Rome. And the last few times the Pope was really threatened, the Pope was able to call in the Franks, and that just ruined everyone's day. Even if you could get away with it, damage to the papacy could undermine the fundamental economy and political order of the city. After all, pretty much everything we've talked about in terms of Rome's continued urbanism was based on the funding and patronage that came into the city and funneled out through the papacy. No, far better to keep things behind closed doors. So, as we've seen, the Theophylacts ruled through the popes, engineering elections so that their candidates would win. And this was easy enough, because, as I've mentioned, the Theophylacts controlled the aristocracy, and were just fairly sure that the poor were not voting in these elections. For their part, the Theophylacts took on fancy Roman-sounding titles, which helped paper over the lack of history for their power, and made the Romans feel like the Theophylacts were one of them, and not Greco-Frankish interlopers. So, as we've said, Morosia was Senatrix, and Alberic was named Princeps. And when Alberic had a son, the boy's birth name was Octavius. All the same, the arrangement was awkward, and depended very much on the ability of the Theophylact Patriarch as a person to win over the other aristocrats. Possibly seeking something a bit more permanent, Princeps Alberic had the Roman aristocracy swear to elect his son, Octavius, as the next pope, and the boy dutifully entered the clergy. When Albrecht died before the current pope, his son filled the time by declaring himself princeps, while having himself promoted up the chain of offices necessary to become a pope. When the old pope died in 955, the aristocracy dutifully elected the boy as Pope John XII. History has not been kind to John XII. He's been called the Caligula of the papacy, and is widely spoken of as the nadir of the early medieval papacy's reputation. But there is a big problem with the received view of John, and if you've read my show notes from the website, you probably can guess what it is. The problem is that we only have two sources for this period of the papacy, and one of them is so short on details as to not be particularly useful. This means that we are forced to rely for our knowledge of this period on Liutprand of Cremona. This lack of sources is itself interesting, and it says a lot about the divided loyalties of the clergy in the events to come, because Otto did have a number of chroniclers already operating at this point, and they chose not to talk about things. But from the standpoint of our narrative, we are stuck once again with having to sift Liutprand's bathtub full of lies. Liutprand accuses John of, let's see here, um, turning the Lateran Palace into a brothel, many many counts of fornication and adultery. Um, we have incest, rape, blinding his confessor, multiple counts of assault, including, ooh, at least one forcible castration, uh, multiple homicides, arson, um, ordaining a ten-year-old boy as bishop, uh, blasphemy, paganism, devil worship, and uh, public hunting. 
As usual with Liyut Prand, some of these sound plausible, some of them do not, and any ability to differentiate the two is almost completely destroyed by Liyut Prand's blatant and enthusiastic lying. We are left to try and reconstruct a picture of John based on the little we know about him with some level of certainty. So let's start at the beginning. John was his papal name. His birth name, as we've mentioned, was Octavius, and for most of his early life he was raised as part of the Romano-Franco-Lombardian aristocracy of central Italy. He would have been trained in some basic warfare skills, and the aristocrats loved hunting, so we can probably give that one to Liutprand for what it's worth. He would certainly have been immersed in what remained of a classical education. Even if his family had not named him Octavius, the Romano-Lombards were mad for anything classical, uh, which they used to look down their noses at the uncultured Franks who were lording it over them. By contrast, his clerical education was begun only after his father had made everyone promise to elect him Pope. So young Octavius may not have had much incentive to really apply himself here. I mean, he was going to be Pope either way. He does seem to have learned what he needed to learn to be Pope, like we don't really hear about him being illiterate or anything, but we do see him just sort of shrugging off traditional responsibilities through sheer disinterest. We can probably assume that when it came to his religious schooling, his heart was really not in it. What he seems to have done with enthusiasm was act as the secular ruler of Rome. This implied managing patronage, chumming it up with the aristocrats, and expanding the city's power. Amongst his first acts as pope was to personally lead a military campaign against Spoleto and the Lombard princes, something that was frowned on by some members of the clergy. If he'd been successful, this frowning might have been overlooked, but as it was, he was only a mediocrity as a war leader. Still, peace was made, and it was not an entirely disadvantageous peace, but given the mediocrity of this showing, the Byzantines soon took advantage of things and started expanding into the Lombard territories once again. Back in Rome, John's rule was kind of unwinding. It seems clear that at least some of the outrage directed at John's scandalous behavior was not entirely invented by Liutprand, though I will leave the specifics of which crimes were committed open to anyone who wants to do further research, though you probably won't have any more luck with Liutprand than I have had. More concretely, John's double role as an eminent theocrat and barbarian warlord was just never going to be an easy one. Other rulers, like John's father, or the Carolingians, or even Otto, could get away with behaving like Germanic war leaders that they were. Indeed, it was expected and rewarded by their soldiers. A little rapine and pillage was part of what you needed to do if you were going to be one of the guys and lead from the front. The rulers that received church approval were the ones that pillaged in the name of God, converted people to Christianity, and donated some share of the stolen goods to the church, even if the stolen goods came from a church, as was not overly uncommon. I am, of course, painting with a broad brush, but you get what I'm going for here. Protecting church property was always very appreciated, but was not necessarily part of the deal. Church leaders, even when they fulfilled secular roles, had some more expectations. Of course, there were exceptions, and during an era of chaos, the rules were not strongly enforced, and there was a fair amount of regional variation. But church leaders, at least from the level of bishop up, and especially in Italy, were supposed to be, you know, somewhat godly. Church leaders were supposed to be literate, educated, and spiritual. They were held up as the representatives of Roman culture and Christian learning, and the Pope was supposed to be the head of the structure. The rules and practices of the church were gradually filling up with the basic tenets of what would become canon law, and most of these rules were created to ensure that the church remained a primarily spiritual institution that represented the best of Roman culture. 
For example, there was a process of offices that you were supposed to fill in a specific order if you wanted to attain high rank in the church institutions. This reminds me of nothing so much as the cursus honorum that governed a Roman senator's rise through the ranks, and given that when these rules were first set down, the people doing the rising through the ranks of the church were probably of the senatorial class, this is, though somewhat speculative, not an unreasonable relationship to draw. In this case, of course, the justification here was to prevent the people being picked for high church offices for political reasons. Almost immediately, of course, this process was rather cynically abused, with candidates in some cases only holding lower offices for a matter of hours as they were pushed up the chain of commands to the intended level. Still, there were norms of expected behavior. Outward signs that the person holding office was churchly and godly and acting in a way consistent with Christian and Roman values. There was probably some considerable variation by location. For example, the prohibition on hunting and shedding blood by high church officials was apparently taken fairly seriously in Italy, despite the large number of bishop princes, while north of the Alps, bishops regularly led troops in battle personally. Just a difference in the way society was constituted in those areas. But here was John, and he was supposed to represent both the interests of the warrior aristocracy and also of the church. One way to interpret the stories we are told by Liutprand is that, even if we can't trust any of the specifics, John was much more comfortable as a Lombard aristocrat than as a spiritual priest. But we're also presented with a picture of a man who was unable to really satisfy either the clerics or the aristocrats. It's not completely clear why he failed to control the aristocracy the way his father had. Possibly he was just not as good as his father had been at that job, or maybe the demands of his papal office made this impossible. It may have been, as suggested in the Chronicles, that his behavior was simply too shocking to his contemporaries. In this, we need not see him as being the Caligula of the papacy we are told about. It may just be that the behavior that would have been encouraged in a warlord made even the aristocrats uncomfortable in a priest. After all, despite the notorious corruption of his papal predecessors, even those Theophylact puppets had been actual clerics and knew the type of demeanor expected in public. John does not seem to have honored such codes of behavior at least according to Liutprand. If we trust Liutprand slightly less and back up a little bit, it might just be the demands of the dual role of his office found John not up to the task. Either of these interpretations is completely legitimate according to the evidence that we have available. Take your pick. Whatever the case, after John's mediocre showing against the Lombards, his rule in the city began to look shaky. Vultures began circling. The Byzantines, as I said, began expanding, and, more threateningly, Berengar II began attacking papal lands in 957. Concerned over the situation, John decided to play the card played by so many popes in the early Middle Ages, and in 960 he called in the Franks. This, of course, brings us back to Otto. Now, we left Otto victorious on the field of Augsburg, and you might expect that the two years between the battle in 955 and the beginning of problems in Italy in 957 had been years of consolidation and respite just rewards for a job well done. Unfortunately for Otto, the two years after Augsburg were anything but restful. Internally, Otto was unassailable, with all contenders either cowed by the events of the Civil War or deliriously loyal after the crushing victory over the Magyars. But this had come at great personal cost. In the four years from 953 to 957, Otto's core family was decimated by a variety of unrelated misadventures. As we've covered last time, his daughter died in 953 of an illness during the Civil War. After her death, Otto reconciled with her former husband, Conrad the Red, who had been a valued champion despite his revolt. But of course, Conrad would die a hero's death at the Battle of Augsburg. During the same campaign, Otto's brother Henry was either mortally wounded or fell ill, depending on who you ask. 
I'm going to split the difference and say that he was wounded and the wound became infected, because why not? Either way, he died, about six months after the battle. Most tragically, Otto's two eldest children with Adelaide, Henry and Bruno, named after Otto's favorite brothers, died of a fever in 957. The death of such young children at this time in history was not unexpected, though of course the parents would still have taken the news hard. Adelaide seems to have had no children after this point. And then came news from Italy. In September 957, word reached Otto that Liudolf, so recently reconciled to his father, had made the classic mistake of being German in Italy and had died of a fever. While the other losses were personal and political blows, this loss was really an existential threat to the kingdom. Liudolf was, despite his rebellion, the obvious heir apparent. With this loss, and with the previous tragedies, Otto's only heir was now a two-year-old boy, also named Otto, the future king Otto II. Podcast footnote. Otto's eldest child at this point was actually named William, and was a strapping lad of 30. He was, however, ineligible to rule because he was illegitimate, having been fathered with an unnamed Slavic mother. Still, Otto did well by his son. William entered the church, and, wouldn't you know it, after that pesky Archbishop Frederick of Mainz died, the clergy of Mainz saw fit to elect the boy as the new Archbishop, just like his uncle Bruno in Lorraine. Given his youth at the time of his elevation, William was surely an impressive lad, who did not fall far from the tree. Must have been a boy genius to be such a young Archbishop, don't you know? Whatever the case, he would go on to be his father's regent during Otto's extended stays in Italy. Spoiler alert. The second eldest scion of Otto, Matilda, was also unable to rule, though in this case she was totally legitimate, but had a fatal case of being a woman in the Middle Ages. There are a few interesting things about Matilda. She ended up being an abbess, and in that role commissioned a number of important literary and historic works, so that's pretty cool and important and all that stuff. Slightly more interesting from my standpoint is that she was around the same age as her younger brother, the future Otto II, to the point that in some sources they are both listed as having a birth year of 955. They were probably not twins, that was the kind of thing chroniclers would mention, along with the flight patterns of birds and very interesting clouds. So it's much more likely that Adelaide was just a very, very busy woman. In fact, she was pregnant on average once a year between 952 and 955. As I indicated before, the end of this run may have been due to grief, but there may also have been other factors. As I will discuss momentarily, Adelaide was about to become very busy in ways that did not involve pregnancy. Of course, Adelaide may also have just gotten tired of puking all the time, or maybe she and Otto had a fight, or maybe there were physical issues, but Adelaide was only around 24 years old at this point, so age was definitely not a factor here. End podcast footnote. When combined with the loss of his brother and brother-in-law, the loss of so many of his children would seem to have put Otto's rule on shaky ground. Remember, these men weren't just relatives, but trusted lieutenants who staffed the government functions of his kingdom. Who could be trusted to rule in the king's absence, staff the bureaucracy, and, in the worst-case scenario, act as regent for the young Prince Otto? This was certainly the view of several of Otto's external enemies, mostly Slavic tribes, and Otto spent the years after Augsburg going back and forth between fighting external fires and dealing with this mounting personal and political tragedy. One observer carefully watching Otto's misfortunes was Berengar II of Italy. Once the hero of his countrymen and guest of Otto's court, now Berengar should probably be seen as nothing other than a sworn enemy. Berengar had tried to make peace with Otto, but the reasonable terms he had agreed with Conrad the Red had been thrown away as a result of the machinations of Otto's brother and wife. So unpopular was Berengar in Otto's court that Otto opted on multiple occasions to continue his fratricidal civil war rather than ease up on the terms imposed on Berengar. Of course, Berengar took the rebel side in the war, and when peace was made, Leodolf was sent to bring him to heel. Leodolf was, in this capacity, the only real captain Otto had in Italy. 
Though much land had been taken from Berengar in northern Italy, it had been given to Henry the Quarrelsome, who you'll remember had just died, leaving his lands in the hands of a regency headed by his wife, Judith of Bavaria. So Leodolf commanded Otto's troops mostly on his own, and it was in this effort that Leodolf fell ill and died. Seeing his chance, while Otto's forces in Italy were unled, and Otto was presumably distracted by grief and succession issues, Berengar struck. He invaded all the lands held by Otto's relatives in northern Italy, and, given the problems that the Papal States were having under John's tottering rule, Berengar attacked the Papal States as well, because if you're picking a fight with the Eastern Franks anyway, why not mess with the Pope too? Desperate pleas for aid went north from Pope John XII, begging Otto for aid, but surely with his situation so shaky, Otto would never be able to make it, right? Well, actually reports of Otto's shakiness were overstated. The Slavs had been slapped into line fairly quickly. The execution of thousands of prisoners by his now battle-hardened army helped with that process. From the upper ranks of that battle-hardened army, Otto found that he was able to replace the loss of his relatives as military leaders. Administratively, staffing might have been more of a problem. Who, in all of Eastern Francia, had the intelligence and literacy necessary to manage such a large kingdom? Well, clerics for one. Otto's brother, Archbishop Bruno, and Otto's illegitimate son, Archbishop William, were the chief figureheads of Otto II's regency. But we should not forget one other group. Otto's new wife, Adelaide, was an Italian-educated woman, and she had brought with her a number of similar friends and relatives, along with a number of uh, poets and minstrels and the like. Amongst this number was the aforementioned Judith of Bavaria, who was active as Regent of Bavaria, the largest duchy at this time, and who was a personal friend of Adelaide's. These women were not just sitting at home, eating bonbons, and playing with spinner fidgets. They were very active in the management of the kingdom, and their territories. They engaged in correspondence with the aristocracy and the clergy, helping to ensure everything was shipshape as Otto organized his army. And of course, they ran the court where their efforts helped to consolidate the gains made by Otto at Augsburg. Certainly, many in the kingdom were cowed by the raw military power of Otto, but over time, many more became inspired by the vision of Otto as a Christian version of the warrior kings of old, leading his men from the front, wielding an unstoppable blade in the name of Christ. While Otto had already had a hand in the rebirth of education in his realm, the scribes and bards Adelaide had brought to Otto's court had begun to write about Otto's great victories in defense of God and civilization, and these stories would be read by the literate classes, which, increasingly, included the aristocrats upon whom Otto depended for his military power. In short, Otto was a hero to the people who mattered, and if people had begun to associate him with Charlemagne, who was he to stop them? Podcast footnote. Actually, for political reasons, Otto did not explicitly talk up his relationship with Charlemagne, although it should be said that his uh, career clearly followed in Charlemagne's footsteps, and he did a number of things, like establish his capital at Aachen, that showed that he was, you know, aware of this relationship. Nonetheless, the relationship couldn't be explicitly direct during his lifetime, because just over the Rhine, Louis IV was still puttering around. Now, Louis had very little power, but Louis was a male line descendant of Charlemagne. Otto was definitely not. Many of the more surreal stories about Otto, for example, him opening up Charlemagne's tomb and clipping his toenails, date to a later date, uh, during the reign of Otto III, actually, whose rule followed the deposal of the last Carolingians by Hugh Capet. Still, there was some talk of Charlemagne in Otto's time, and it seems likely that Otto was personally a fan, like I said, given the course of his career. 
more broadly, the aristocracy of Otto's realm had probably begun treating Charlemagne as a legendary hero by this point, telling stories around the fire. But we can't know for sure, because the stories didn't start getting written down explicitly until the propaganda drives of Otto III. During Otto's reign, it was more direct hero worship of Otto I himself. End podcast footnote. So, while Berengar may have looked forward to facing a kingdom held together merely by clergy and women, and while he did get that, boy did he get it. This was the third time Berengar had underestimated Adelaide, and one might have thought that he would have learned earlier. He would not get any further chances. Despite all Otto's reverses, in 961 yet another massive East Frankish army rolled south into Italy, and Berengar's forces once again showed all the backbone and determination of Dr. Zoidberg from Futurama. I call entirely! <laughs> Otto's troops marched triumphantly to Pavia, and then to Rome without fighting a single battle. In Rome, Otto met with a grateful pope, and there was much rejoicing. Now this success created an awkward problem for John. Otto had just done something super nice for the papacy, coming all this way to beat up Berengar. John needed to give him a nice present, but what do you give a guy who has everything? He didn't need money or horses or nice pans. A title was pretty traditional in this situation, but Otto was already the king of Italy. What else was there? Well, pretty much just one thing, the long-defunct title of emperor. Otto was dutifully crowned in early 962. Now, of course, of course this revived title was Otto's idea, and John was in no position to say no. For his part, John played up the fact that it was the papacy conferring the emperorship as much as possible, but it was clearly Otto running the show the entire time. Otto convened a synod and imperial festivities, and at the synod, which Otto had convened, Otto negotiated with the Pope to delineate the relationship between the empire and the papacy. The relationship as defined was not bad. Otto reconfirmed the papal possession of the papal states, both sides promised loyalty and recognition to each other, and both sides also had a hand in each other's elections. The emperor retained the ability to approve papal elections, and of course it was the pope that crowned the emperor. The resulting Diploma Atonianum would set the shape of papal relations with the empire for the next century. To be sure, John did as well as previous popes had out of this deal. Seriously, there is nothing here that was any different from anything done under Charlemagne and Louis the Pious and Louis II, but something about this whole situation seems to have worried John. The chroniclers just say that John was worried that Otto would have too much power over the Pope, but previous Popes had been completely on board with all these provisions, as far as we know. There were basically two possible issues here, and they are in no way mutually exclusive. On the one hand, the Popes had been living without a strong Emperor since the death of Louis II. They may have gotten used to operating without oversight. They may just have not liked the Germans. Always an option. More concretely, John was himself the scion of the Theophylact clan, whose position was, you will recall, that they were the last people put in place as imperial representatives overseeing papal elections. It may be that John was a little bit worried that while his role as pope was being respected, his role as imperial overseer might not be. I mean, technically, that office was vacant? Probably. The other big issue is that John maybe was just kind of a bit paranoid. He is not remembered as a particularly likable person, and he's repeatedly seen taking drastic actions in response to situations that might have been otherwise containable. Just as a for example, it isn't clear to me that Berengar II was actually threatening Rome itself when John called in Otto. If John had toughed it out and worked on his relationship with the aristocracy a bit more, maybe he wouldn't have been in this mess in the first place. But John does not seem to have been that kind of a guy. 
Instead, he comes off as a spoiled brat born into the purple and raised as a Lombard princeling. Of course, this assessment of his personality relies somewhat on the picture we get from the Chronicles, which are untrustworthy. Still, it makes sense, and I think that these two factors probably combine to drive John's actions, which, again, while some discomfort with creeping imperial power may have been reasonable uh, amongst the, the clergy in Rome, they'd seen this kind of thing come and go over the years. It may have just been that John was that kind of paranoid guy to turn his fears into action. So while previous popes would have waited to see what happened, John overreacted, began conspiring with Berengar's son Adelbert, and began trying to gather assistance from the Magyars, the Lombards, and the Byzantines, while Otto was out chasing down Berengar II. Unfortunately for John, Otto captured Berengar fairly quickly, and shortly thereafter learned what John was up to. Otto turned his large army of hairy northerners around, and just walked right back to Rome. John compounded his poorly executed scheming by convincing the aristocracy of the city to resist Otto. Undoubtedly, the proud Roman citizenry were annoyed at being lorded over by foreigners, and anti-German sentiment in the city had a long history, but this was... this was dumb. And it had a fairly predictable result. Otto, leading an army that had conquered a quarter of Europe, was not deterred by the walls or army of Rome a city which, at this point, couldn't exert power over Capua. John may have hoped that the spiritual significance of the city would deter Otto, but that was not the kind of man Otto was. Deeply spiritual, certainly, but Otto was also convinced of his own righteousness. Otto's men conducted a direct assault on the walls, which they scaled after three days of siege, and subjected the city to a bloody and violent sack. John, of course, bravely fled with the papal treasury. Otto summoned a council to try John on a number of charges, many of which were reflected to us in Liutprand's testimony. John refused to appear and threatened to excommunicate anyone involved with the trial, but instead of listening to him, they deposed him as pope and appointed Leo VII as pope. Then Otto declared job well done, sent his army home, and shortly thereafter headed north himself. What? Yeah, that's what he did. Uh, again, feudal armies and all that. Again, this was premature, as John was at large, and for some reason, being brutally massacred and robbed by the Germans, had not instilled a lot of love for Otto and the Pope that he had installed in the Roman people. Once Otto was gone, John re-entered the city and the mob quickly took his side. Leo VII fled the city and was deposed by a new council led by John. But before anyone could really react to this reversal, John died. According to Liutprand, of course, he died as he lived, suffering from a stroke while mid-coitus with a married woman. Who knows if this is true, but it sure is a fun story. Despite John's colorful demise, that may or may not be true, the Romans were no more enthusiastic about Leo than they had been before, and so they reconvened the council and elected a new pope. Shortly thereafter, however, a bunch of grumpy and footsore Germans appeared outside the walls, looking none too pleased at having to once again march down into this hot mosquito-infested peninsula. They stormed the walls, and the new pope was deposed. Leo was restored to power, and the old pope was sent to Saxony. Otto spent the majority of the rest of his reign in Italy, trying to hold things together, and he actually made a lot of progress. He expanded his realm to the south, rebuilding some of the Italian bureaucratic system, and restored independence and power to the papacy as an institution apart from the Roman nobility. It is ironic, given what follows in the Middle Ages, that the independence and power of the papacy over the papal states and its own destiny is widely credited to Otto's interference here. Otto's tenure in Italy led to conflicts with the Eastern Roman Empire, but these were eventually smoothed over by the marriage of Otto II to a Roman princess. 
the next three generations of Eastern Frankish kings would have a minimum of three titles. King of the Eastern Franks, King of the Italians, and the August Emperor. Things cosmetically began to fall apart when Otto III died without children and his cousin Henry II did as well, but an imperial diet was called and rather than falling into infighting, the diet elected Conrad II as the new emperor. Conrad was the great-great-grandson of Otto I and the great-grandson of that hero of Augsburg, Conrad the Red. This new Salian dynasty would rule for another four generations. In all that time, the kings of the Eastern Roman Empire would also be the kings of Italy, and during the years between 962 and 1075, they would also be hailed as Imperator Augustus. Shortly thereafter, as the alliance between papacy and empire began to fray, the Hohenstaufen dynasty would take the throne, and, in an attempt to force this gap closed, would begin to call themselves the Holy Roman Emperors, and thus the name by which we know this political entity would finally be attached to it many, many years after its foundation. This, then, is the point. The point of all the episodes since episode 16. Hey, guy! Because the early modern period did not come from nowhere. It came out of the Middle Ages, and the Protestant Reformation did not happen just because Martin Luther had some deep thoughts about God. There were many other heretics in Europe over the years, and many of his ideas were not entirely unique. The other heretics failed for a variety of reasons, but ultimately, it was the political power structure of the area that they showed up in that eliminated them. Martin Luther showed up in the Holy Roman Empire at a very specific time in its life, and it's important for us to understand what happened to understand that empire. I felt a need to discuss the origins of this empire in depth, because, first of all, the stories were great, but also because people in general, and Americans in particular, have a very tentative grasp of the Middle Ages and the Holy Roman Empire. If they've heard of the Holy Roman Empire, it's in the context of quotes like, it was neither holy, nor Roman, nor an empire. The empire is a historical joke, an oddity of early modern Europe that was too dysfunctional to survive. But what I hope you have learned from this series so far is that it was not always the case. The Holy Roman Empire started life as the Kingdom of the Eastern Franks, a rump state of the Frankish Empire to be sure, but in its day a terrifying military powerhouse. When the King of France was most famous for his choice of outer garment, and effectively only controlled the areas around Paris, the Saxon dynasty of the Eastern Franks were expanding in every way it is possible to expand. The tribes and kingdoms on their borders were conquered or forced into the orbit of the empire. Christian missionaries were sent out north, east, and south. The internal structure of the empire was gradually rationalized and brought under firm central control. Literary life revived, and secular-oriented learning was spread to all corners of the empire and beyond. This was a real and marked contrast to what had gone before. The Avars were gone, the Vikings were going away, the Magyars would soon be manageable frenemies. Soon European powers living and operating under the umbrella of imperial protection would push the Saracen pirates away from Italy, ultimately conquering even Sicily. While not what we would consider a proper state, the Kingdom of Eastern Francia and their Italian possessions, and the Holy Roman Empire that they would become, were not a joke. What all this meant for the lives of the people who lived in Europe and the society that had emerged from the ashes of late antiquity will be the main focus of the next run of episodes. If you'd like, you can think of the walking tour episodes as season one of this show, and these early imperial episodes as season two. The next 20-ish episodes or so are going to finish up our look at the Middle Ages by touching on subjects from the time period of 962 to 1500, in roughly chronological order, that serve as key background for the main narrative of the show. So, I'm going to spend a few episodes, rather soon, on the Investiture Controversy. 
which I've already hinted at in today's episode and some previous ones. Later on, I'm going to discuss the religious wars of Europe during this time period, and up to and including the Hussite Wars, which Travis Dow mentioned in his guest episode early in the series. And the Hussite Wars, I should say, very much set the stage for Martin Luther. There were actually still Hussites around during Luther's lifetime. But all of this stuff that I'm going to talk about is going to be done in the framework of an examination of the European Middle Ages as a time and a place inhabited by real people, with a society framed by cultural and economic realities different from our own. To help set this ball rolling, and to help close off this last season of episodes, next episode I will be joined by friend of the show and podcasting lunatic, Travis Dow, for a discussion of the significance of the Battle of Augsburg, which will ultimately lead us to one very important question. What is the Middle Ages anyway? Today we discussed Otto I's reign after the Battle of Augsburg. Despite his great victory, Otto spent the next few years of his life confronting personal tragedy and fighting political fires. In Italy, Berengar II chafed under the unfavorable peace forced on him by Otto, and he took advantage of Otto's problems to attack Pope John XII, a scion of the Theophylact clan who had tried to combine the roles of Lombard strongman and Pope without too much success. Though John's reputation as the Caligula of the papacy is probably undeserved, he was an odd duck to be sure, and ultimately rewarded Otto's aid against Berengar with an imperial title and treachery. Otto's response to John's treachery was to assault Rome, resulting in a bloody sack of the city, and a game of musical chairs between Otto's candidates for pope and the candidates favored by the resentful Romans. Otto resolved the situation by occupying the city and sitting on it like a goose on an egg for the rest of his reign. We closed out with a brief examination of the implications of Otto's rule. Ultimately, Otto is often credited as the first Holy Roman Emperor, and while this isn't technically true, if any one person can be said to have founded that political entity, it would probably be Otto. It was Otto who finally knit together the German stem duchies, it was Otto who conquered Italy, and it was Otto who wrested the title away from the Pope. The implications of the existence and internal structuring of this bizarre mountain-range-spanning political entity will become clear with time. But for now, I have to thank you for listening, and hope you tune in next time for another great episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, and we'll be talking with Travis Dow about the Battle of Hawk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. 
Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.